Hi, friends. We really wanted to close out the final week of the year with something truly inspiring and human. So welcome to Good Humans Week on the podcast. And this series has just one interviewer this time around, and it's me. So as John and Julie produce, they really let me run. So meet our 2021 Good Humans, Sue Ann Arnall and Trinity Heavens. We don't want you to simply know their story. We want you to know them, their heart, their lived experience, their passions, their fears, its vulnerability and humanity converging to more deeply connect us through story and to remind us why we fight for things that matter. At their core, both Sue Ann and Trinity represent the best in what it means to be a good human. We hope you enjoy their stories. I want to welcome everybody to Good Humans. And good humans, are they're not just billionaires and wealthy individuals. They're not celebrities and CEOs. They are the most full-hearted, generous people among us who have boldly stepped out onto a precipice to be a positive force for good with their philanthropy, their influence, their empathy, and their activism. And the individual that we are talking to today absolutely encompasses all of that. She is an extraordinary woman. She is a mother. She is a writer. She is a generously warm human. And she always sees the little guy. And she works quietly and humbly in the background to make life more equitable and fulfilling for those around her. And she is a titan and a force for good. She is an industry veteran. She's achieved a number of milestones in her career with uh, Continental Resources and other companies within industry. I think one of her most impressive successes was a lawsuit that she won to protect the company's assets, securing a $30 million judgment, which is the largest punitive damage award in Oklahoma. But in 2015, she really founded the Arnall Family Foundation, which focuses on child welfare, animal welfare, and criminal justice reform. And she is so passionate about focusing on solutions that lower the incarceration rate and racial disparity among African-American men in U.S. jails and prisons. The thing that I love so much about her is she is from Poto, Oklahoma, population 8,800. She got her degree at the University of Tulsa. She got a bachelor's degree in economics, and she also has her Juris Doctorate. Incredible human. Welcome to Good Humans. Thanks for being here, Sue Ann. Thanks, Becky. It's kind of hard to live up to that the way you've... Oh, man. You have no idea what we're about to dive into. And I have a feeling that people are just going to fall in love with the incredible person that you are. But I really think people are going to want to understand how does a girl from Poto, Oklahoma, uh, make it to the point where you are signing the giving pledge and giving away the vast majority of your wealth and seeing people um, for exactly where they are in life and kind of extending your hand to help them. So maybe just start by telling us a little bit about your story. Growing up in Poto, we didn't have enough people to really field every sport and every activity. So everybody was in everything. And it's a drawback to grow up in a small town as far as learning what's going on in the world, and especially back then, uh, 50 years ago. But it's not a drawback in terms of gaining confidence. Because I was a cheerleader and I was in the band and in my little cheerleading uniform, I had to go out and march in the band at halftime. That's what we did. That We had football players who were in the band. They had to go march at halftime. I went to college on a full ride music scholarship. But while I was there, I was with some really good people, extremely talented. I practiced a lot, but I didn't have that innate talent. And I realized that it was going to be a, a long haul for them too even as good as they were. So I changed my major to economics. 
it was a little bit like reading music and trying to transpose reading graphs, charts, trying to make something out of it. And so then I went on to law school because I didn't know what to do with the economics degree. <laughs> and what, I mean, what was your dream? What When you were in college and when you were going through uh, law school, what were you thinking about the sort of place that you wanted uh, to be in the world and the mark you wanted to set? I really wanted to be a criminal defense attorney. That was my dream, to be in the courtroom and trying to right wrongs. And I had that opportunity at one point where I worked for a public defender, and that was incredible. I worked for a federal public defender when I was in law school, and then uh, a firm that had gotten a, a public defender contract. So I was their person and went to court and tried to get people out, tried to get them through arraignments and preliminary hearings. And I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. And I became so connected to the clients and because I was young. It wasn't the healthiest thing for me at that point. And I recognized that too. So I had already worked in the oil industry all my life, really. So I went back to that. And it was easier to keep it on the desk, in the computer, uh, leave it when I went home. Felt like this was a better way for me to live while I had kids, while they were at home. We've been able to have just what I, on my side, is just like a very special little friendship. And I have so enjoyed and looked up to you in the way that we talk about both of our girls. And I, I wonder, like, just about your two beautiful daughters, and I know that you're very close with them, and what do they think of mom today? When they were growing up and um, I was working so much, because even though it wasn't like criminal defense, I wasn't becoming attached to people. I I have a pretty good work ethic. I started working when I was sep- in seventh grade, going to work every day after school, every summer, every holiday. So when I work, I work. But it was really hard to leave them. And occasionally, I would, they call me all the time on the phone. I'd always answer. And I worried they blamed me when I had to travel for it, or I thought they blamed me. It was tough on them. But now they say that they're really happy I worked. And so I'm glad that they recognize it on the other side. Said They've told me they admire me for working because now that they look back, it was tough. And it was tough. I want to pivot a little bit and I want to talk about the Arnall Foundation. Um, I have to be completely honest that I am a huge, huge fan, completely geeked out with how you have structured your foundation, how absolutely finite and focused you are on three core areas. And I want you to just talk about setting up a foundation and how did you pick these three core areas and what was the goal and the intent behind it? I truly had no real plan when I started it. I just knew I needed to. I was already involved in animal welfare and I helped get the puppy mill bill passed in Oklahoma 10 years ago. Because of Oklahoma being in such a a situation where we euthanized probably the most in the country. It was between us, Arkansas, and Missouri. I thought that's what I know. That's what I'll focus on with AFF, Arnold Family Foundation. But then a friend who worked at the Department of Human Services here in Oklahoma was telling me about the kids that age out of foster care. And she said they have no safety net when they age out. That broke my heart. And she had this idea of an organization from out of state who had a program that was very, was evidence-based. They had great results in 
doing wraparound services for kids who were about to age out and had aged out. So I made a pretty large grant for that. That was my first really large grant and then became involved, started learning and thought, wait, we've got to stop these kids from even going into foster care because I'd learned that we weren't just taking them out for intentional neglect, but also situational. Situational is something like living in your car because you can't afford rent, electricity being turned off, water being turned off, mother not being able to afford uh, childcare, so leaving young kids at home while she went to work. That's situational. has nothing to do with the love a parent has for the child or the love the child has for the parent. It's just tough circumstances. We were taking kids out for that. And Intentional neglect, yes, absolutely. But with so many kids being taken out just because their parents couldn't provide for them, thought, why don't we go help them? Why don't we help the family so they can keep their kids? Once a kid gets taken out of his home, he's forever traumatized. It's horrific. Going to a new family, even if it's the most fabulous family in the world, that insecurity a child has is horrible. And I recognized immediately that in Oklahoma, we were saying that's the state's problem, not our problem. And I thought, no, it's not. It's my problem. It's our problem. These are our kids. When our state takes custody of these kids away from their parents, they're our responsibility. And it's up to all of us to try to make it better. And so we became very involved in uh, child welfare, specifically children who were either going into foster care, in foster care, or about to go in. So then I started getting into the circumstances for these children, how did they end up in foster care? Because there were a lot who had parents who did love them, but they had been in jail or prison. At one point, we had the highest number of kids in foster care. We had the highest number of people in prison or incarcerated. There's got to be a connection. So I started looking at that, and there absolutely was a connection. And we had a pretty long discussion here at AFF on whether we could transition into criminal justice? Did it fit within our goals? And everybody, after they saw the data, said, absolutely, it does. Because we had the highest number, then I really can't address all of those people in prison. There's just no way. There's not enough money. There's not enough time, resources. What if we work on trying to keep them from going? So we narrowed our focus on uh, people in, in jail and about the inner prison and trying to, we call it stop the flow, slow the flow. And so that's where we've been focused pre-trial and post-sentencing, but pre-prison. I always like data. I love to look at numbers and I love to try to figure out what the trend is on those. That's the and, economics majoring you. Yeah, it's got to be. Mm-hmm. And the crude oil trading. Probably. To, just the numbers, looking at trends, trying to figure out what to do. So I saw 40% of the people who entered DOC, Department of Corrections, that year had entered as a result of a revocation of probation. Over half of those had, on their revocation, it wasn't because of a new offense. It was because of a violation of the terms. They call those technical violations. So there were people perfectly harmless, living their lives, working, trying to get by, but they can't afford to get the bus if they have a job to go get that urine analysis that they're, they're given a couple of hours to do. They can't afford to go to these service providers and pay. The service providers, a lot of them will not allow the person in if they don't pay first. So it's as if they didn't show up if they uh, go and they can't afford it, can't pay the $25, $35 to get in. I went to a couple of these 
organizations and set in on their classes. And one girl fainted while she was there. It turned out she had donated plasma before she got there. I am not making this stuff up. This oh is gosh. so common. She donated plasma so that she could afford to get into the class because she had to get through the class so she could get her kids back. We put so many uh, monetary burdens on people to get through the system. And that's why 85% of the people in our Oklahoma County Jail, they're under uh, federal poverty guidelines. They're indigent. They can't afford the bond. They can't afford an attorney. They can't afford the service fees. They can't afford everything stacked up on them. So they end up in prison forever. And their kids end up in state care. And that's the cycle that I'm looking at even still. In federal stats on crimes and whether you're a safe community, a violent community, the crimes that they judge or take data on are crimes against people and crimes against property. Nowhere in that is taking drugs. Nowhere. Drugs are not criminalized in the federal guidelines for what's a crime. However, in Oklahoma, one third of the people we arrest, it's drug related. If we just stop doing that, not drug trafficking, just drug related. If we stop doing that, can you imagine the number of people who wouldn't be in jail in the Department of Corrections? It would be culture shifting. Several states don't criminalize to that degree anymore, and their incarceration rates are lower. But for some reason, it's still going on, and it's still criminalized. So the police and the judges get to choose what they enforce. And when they say, I can't go by that crime and not arrest them, yeah, they do. They do every day. They go by all these crimes. They just don't choose to arrest. They pick and choose who they arrest and what they arrest for. And it's reinforced by our uh, district attorneys, by our judges also, and by the public. I have to tell you, just as someone who is hardwired for fairness and for justice, that goes all over me. And I, I want to pause right here because what you have just said is so ground shaking to me. And all I keep thinking is, you know, I, to me, there's a very stark difference between being a donor and being a philanthropist. And my friend, you are certainly a philanthropist because I think anybody can throw money at any, at a problem, but to actually do the work and, and I actually am sitting here thinking you might be the one person who is so uniquely qualified to take this on because you have that economics background, you have the legal background, and you have a massive heart for justice. And the fact that you're curious enough to dig into the hard data, because I think that's probably what scares a lot of people away is the more you dig, the more you find and the more you keep uncovering and the layers of it are systemic in the way that they are. And so I, I just am here to give you the biggest virtual hug and to thank you for what you're doing, because I think it's very hard to find someone who has the resources, who can bring to bear to solve some of these problems, who has the influence, who can say, hey, this isn't right and we need to build something around it and to invest your time, your talent, 
all of your funds into creating structures that equalize. That to me is probably the greatest gift that you are giving to our community right now. So one, I want to thank you so much for that. And I have to think that there has got to be a ripple effect to this because if we help one person, it would be worth it to change the trajectory of their life. But if we could massively influence an entire community estate, I, I mean, I hate to be true dramatic, but that is how you change the world. I think so also. Uh, we're not going to go into how I became infamous, but I it was a horrible point in my life about 10 years ago, and I was infamous, not famous, infamous. There's a difference. And I was horribly embarrassed, horribly uh, depressed over it. But then I thought, dang, I'm going to use being infamous, and I'm going to get meetings. And I did. Everybody I called, I got a meeting with. I was so surprised. But after I got through that, I decided just to use the fact that people knew my name and call and try to get meetings. And so I I did. And I was able to learn the players in criminal justice, the players in child welfare, the people interested, the people not so interested, the people who were antagonists and the protagonists. And that was very different from the way I'm wired to call a lot of people I don't know, do cold calls, do meetings, and but it worked, and I'm glad I did it. And here you are, changing the world. I'm accused of getting into the weeds too much, but we all, the whole U.S. lives under the same constitution. We have the same U.S. constitution, but it's how it's implemented, how we follow it or don't follow it. So just changing a law is not enough. You have to make sure it can be implemented, follow up, enforce it. And just because you change a law doesn't mean it has stay changed. So without knowing what's happening at the grassroots, you really can't make a change. I didn't feel like I could make a change if I just stayed up there and said, hey, get this law passed. Hey, give these people some money. I, I couldn't see that working. And I also was told to go for the gaps in services, gaps in needs, don't chase that last dog. Like after we get to 90% uh, live release rate for animals, we don't keep chasing that last dog. <laughs> Move on, find another need. And so that's what we're doing. We look for the needs and we're not going to be in that space forever. We intend to change it. And that's why I'm putting a lot of money into this area because I want to change it now. I don't want to drag it out. I don't want my money to last forever. I want to spend it now and change this. And I intend to. We're taking a quick pause today to thank our sponsor, Neon One. Our friends over at Neon One provide software that connects organizations to what matters most, their people and their passions. With the year-end giving season here, there's a lot to learn about the results from Giving Tuesday that could help your year-end campaigns. Like, would you have guessed that over 45% of all donors were new to the organizations they choose to support? Or that 55% more of Neon One's clients participated in Giving Tuesday compared to last year? Giving Tuesday was a huge success, with over $22.2 million raised on Neon One, and end-of-year appeals are still on the horizon. Are you getting ready for the final days of 2021? Get support from other nonprofits like you by joining Neon One's year-end giving connections community today. Visit neonone.com slash weareforgood or follow the link in our show notes. Hey friends, after meeting some of the most visionary leaders and world changers in the nonprofit sector today, we realize they all have one thing in common. They invest in themselves and their teams so they can stay relevant to what's working now to succeed and scale their missions. 
You know us. We believe education's for all. And that's when we created We Are For Good Pro. Pro is reimagining nonprofit professional development, giving you access to incredible live coaching events with some of the best thought leaders like Kishana Palmer, Lynn Wester, and more. Imagine being able to work through your challenges in real time. That's the power of Pro. Every week, we host a new workshop, giving you the playbook and tools to take immediate action, build your confidence, and grow your impact. Be the pro and get started today with a 14-day free trial. Head over to weareforgoodpro.com slash free. Okay, let's get back to this amazing conversation. I love that you are so flexible. And I love what you're saying about being resilient and listening and going where the need is. And I want to transition a little bit into the giving pledge. And and I want to be clear with everyone who's watching or listening right now that the reason that Sue Ann made it onto our ungettable get list, the reason that we reached out to her and asked her to do this interview is because when I read her giving pledge letter, it was one of those moments where I felt changed. And um, as a writer, I love reading other people's thoughts. And I've certainly read all of the giving pledge letters, but this one stood out to me. And the reason it stood out to me is because when I read it, it was one of the most selfless letters, one that I had ever heard of. There are not a lot of eyes in it. It's more about looking outward, which I think is, is an incredible lens and a tone to set in something like that. But the other thing that I noticed, and I know I said this to you, I think the first time we ever visited, it felt less like a giving pledge letter to me and it felt more like a love letter to your daughter's. And I want to read something um, very quickly from it that I just love so much. Money does not buy happiness, but it can buy freedom. Freedom from worry about your or your child's well-being or next meal, or freedom from worry about simply surviving another day. So I take this privilege of wealth with a great deal of gratitude and humility and will attempt to use it to buy freedom for those shackled by poverty, neglect, or the cruel fate of circumstance. That is in itself powerful, but it's not my favorite part. So I want, I want to read my favorite part. Several years ago, I received the support of my two daughters, Jane and Hillary, in this pursuit of giving away all of your wealth. At an early age, my daughter, Jane, encouraged me to devote all of my resources to philanthropy and my dream of helping others. She assured me that my love and happiness were far more important to her than any inheritance she might receive. As they have grown older, both of my daughters have become even more adamant that I pursue this dream. One, I just want to say that to have daughters who understand that privilege and the gift of what you're doing to the world, bravo to you, mom. Way to go. And then two, to know that I almost see the three of you in lockstep doing this together. And it is a really beautiful thing. So I, I'm just curious about your giving pledge, why you decided to sign it. And I have to say, from the point you started your foundation, you signed this giving pledge very quickly, in my opinion. Um, so it tells me that it was in within you the whole time. So talk to me about your giving pledge. I don't know about you or most people, but whenever I heard about someone who left their wealth to other things besides their children, I thought, oh, they must not love their children. They're disinheriting their children. And thought, I could never do that to my kids. Uh, Jane approaching me and, and Hillary agreeing and encouraging me really freed me from that worry because now I know they're not going to think that I don't love them if I don't leave all of my money to them. 
In fact, they're encouraging me not to. They said, it's your money, mom. You need to do what makes you happy. I've always wanted to give away money. That That's just what I do. That's what me I want too. to do. <laughs> me too. Modestly, but yeah. yes. Yeah. And then I knew who was in the giving pledge. And they're incredible people. And they run incredible philanthropies. There are quite a few members. They're young. They're very innovative. And they have innovative ideas for philanthropy, uh, social impact, social impact bonds. I've learned so much. They have these learning series uh, throughout the year. And those are incredible. They have these best in the world people come talk to us about a certain vehicle for making a change or the thought process, the steps, how to develop a program. The advice available there is something I couldn't get anywhere else. I did not want to be a normal foundation where I just wrote checks. They don't want to only get money for some program. They want to get money for operations so they can grow too and develop best practices. So they know sometimes when they're not, they don't have the the best program that is available, but they can't afford to switch. So I wanted to be that investment money, that risk money for organizations. But what we do is we figure out what we want to cause to happen. And then we start learning the community, what's going on, who's a good player, who has integrity, who's respected. And then we'll develop a plan so that we can cause this impact. And that's what we do. Occasionally, an organization will find out about an organization that has that plan, but they have a gap in it and they need funding for that or help developing it. We'll do that also, but it's it has to be within our plan with the goal of what we've decided we want to do. If we just give for everything and have no focus, no goals, we won't be able to cause change. We will be able to help a lot of people, but probably not for generations. And we want to cause a change for generations. But the Giving Pledge helped me figure all this out. And I, I've i sat next to Warren Buffett twice for dinner. And I've had incredible oh conversations with him. You know, he's my philanthropic crush. He is my favorite 90-year-old. And you're a lot like him. And as you've been talking, I've been thinking, I mean, again, to the difference, the vast difference between a donor and a philanthropist, I love what you're saying here that you've done. And I hope that people are taking notes, especially anyone who's thinking about what can I do with my personal philanthropy? And I don't even think it has, you have to have millions to be able to do this. This is a conversation anybody can have. I mean, Arnall Foundation, you guys are rocking it. I cannot begin to clap more or just cheer you on because what you are doing and what you have done to smartly position your philanthropy, I think will be completely socioeconomic changing here in our own state. Thank you. There is something I didn't mention I'd like to. One of the main goals besides helping the children so that their parents aren't incarcerated was to decrease the disparity in uh, incarceration of African-Americans. We also incarcerate the most African-Americans per capita in the country. In the country, 25% of young men born after 1990 will have been incarcerated at some point in their lives. In Oklahoma, 50%. (gasps) We stay on this trend. That is a huge driver for us. At first, nobody wanted to listen. I would give talks about it and People were astonished, but then blew it off. The time has come now where people are not blowing that off. They're paying attention. 
And I've said for quite a while that a young black kid, if he has a fear of police, it's not irrational. It's a very rational fear. And I'd like to help so that it's not a rational fear. It's not a rational fear for the parents. It's not a rational fear for that kid. And I just have to think about, I'm picturing these mothers and the angst they must have and the anxiety they must have. And to know that they have a partner like you that is willing to force these very hard conversations, because it really reminds me so much of just our number one core value in our company, which is everyone matters. And you have to bring everyone to the table. I want to talk about your philanthropy a little bit. And I am just curious, what's the most favorite donation that you've ever made? It was my biggest donation, and it's the Diversion Hub. When I got into criminal justice, I really was just listening for over a year, going to meetings. And the judges would say, if only we had this. The DAs would say, we could have let him out if we had this. I found out that uh, a lot of people were failing in their probation because of the inability to get to services, uh, inability to pay fines and fees. They pay one place, not know that they could still get a warrant for another place. Anyway, they said if everything was brought together, a one-stop shop for people in the justice system, that would so help them. And so we spent about a year and a half having focus groups and uh, asking, what's the need? What do you think we should do? They, out of the focus groups and then an advisory council that we created, had judges, DAs, public defenders, but some agency heads. Then they created the diversion hub or the concept for it. One-stop shop, we would provide uh, case management, justice navigation, but not duplicate all the services that are available. So we brought the service providers on site so that a person doesn't have to go to another place to try to get housing and another place to get employment and another place to get their mental health needs. So the organizations providing those services and the ones that were doing a really good job and also play well with others, that's important because we're all together. So we adopted this model that's really after the Homeless Alliance here for bringing everyone under one roof so that we're all working together. And so that's what we did with the Diversion Hub. We started a pilot about two years ago, and that was in the courthouse. And we opened the doors, bringing all the service providers in and all the administration, and then our case managers, justice navigators in June of 2020. And we have over 85 people coming through the doors every day. But we help. A person can't get housing because they don't have the deposit. We give them the deposit. We pay the deposit. They can't uh, complete their services like a batter's intervention program because they can't afford the money up front. It's a couple hundred dollars. We go ahead and pay that for them and then they go. So we, we try to help in every way we can walk them through the system. We're advocates for them in court. We've had over a thousand clients so far. And we get them through. And $25 and $35 all of a sudden doesn't become a barrier to your freedom, you know, Mm -hmm. or advocating or we we don't want people 
having to go donate plasma and passing out in the middle of their hearing. I, I'm just so heartened to know that you're taking that on. And I absolutely love that gift very, very much. I'm so glad you shined a light on that. I hoped you would. Um, we have a lot of nonprofit professionals who tune in and listen to our podcast. And I wonder what you would say would be the biggest misstep development professionals make when they're courting major gift donors. Not understanding our parameters and not reading about them and asking before they ask for a gift and not helping us get to know them. When they ask for a gift in our first encounter, that's rough. Yeah. And it's really hard for me to say no. <laughs> it's super hard. You want to help everybody. Yeah, I do. But if I help everybody, I'll help nobody. I think that that is great counsel because development professionals are so great developing and cultivating those relationships with one-on-one -on -one donors. But I feel like there's a, there is a, a gap in doing that with a private foundation. You're a human too. There are individuals that live in your foundation. I want to give a shout out to Lindsay Laird. I can't go throughout this entire interview without saying hi to my friend, Lindsay Laird, who's your program officer for child welfare. Get to know your program officers, reach out to these foundations, do your homework. If they have anything on their website, read every part of it, scour the web, read their press releases, read their quotes so you can understand their heart. Um, and really, it's just about being vulnerable and raw and not saying what you need, but saying what the problem is and how you think they can partner together is a really good tip. So I want to know who inspires you in this lifetime? Philanthropist, maybe it's your child, maybe you have a mentor who inspires you. I've taken a whole lot of advice from George Kaiser. He's been very kind and very helpful. In fact, he's the one who asked me onto the giving pledge. And he, he's given me a lot of advice for how to structure it. And he gets to know everything about what he's developing. He develops the goal and then works backwards. How does he get there? And then as he sees more gaps and more gaps, then he fills them. But he does a lot of science research He's amazing. And he's right here in Oklahoma. I have like one more question that I want to ask you before we get into our rapid fire. And I wonder what you would tell little Sue Ann um, if you could go back as a young girl. What advice would you give yourself? Don't be afraid to explore new things. Just don't let fear guide where you go. I think you've done that. And something tells me you may still just be on that journey. And I see this natural curiosity in you and knowing that it comes from a place of empathy and you, and you talk about risk and allowing nonprofits to have risk. And I want to thank you for that. I heard an interview with Melinda Gates recently and I adore her and I love, I love just the ethos that she lives for. And someone asked her, what is the thing that people forget about you? And her answer was that I'm a human being. I think I think of that sentence every single day. And our philanthropists are humans. They are humans with hearts. And this is the humanizing part of Sue Ann. And I think we're going to have a lot of fun with it. So question number one, tell me what your greatest childhood memory is. Riding my horse with my best friend Mildred on her horse and riding up Kavanaugh Mountain. It's actually the highest hill in the world. But we lived in, out in the country on the other side of town. And I'd ride my horse to meet up with her. Then we'd ride through town, seriously through town. And sometimes we pick up other kids. So it would be four or five of us riding our horses through town up Kavanaugh Mountain. And we did it a lot. 
and it was a blast. It was idyllic. It really was. I cannot recapture that. It was too cool. Oh, your face, your whole face just changes when you talk about something like that. And I love it. And I adore you. Um, What is something that people often get wrong about you? They think I'm aloof and stuck up and I'm truly just extremely shy. And I don't wear my glasses a lot of times, so I can't see. (laughs) Um, First concert you ever attended? Smith. With my cousin and my sister. You remember them? My parent. Well, you know, I'm a child of hippies. (laughs) So, of course. (laughs) So, shine in the morning. Yeah, it was fun. Tell me what the most burdensome part is of having wealth. Again, it's having to say no. They say, oh, it doesn't doesn't hurt to ask. It hurts me. It really hurts me. (laughs) You just humanized every uh, major gift owner right there with that answer. So, thank you for that. Um, What is your favorite charity other than your own? One that I followed for quite a while is the MacArthur Foundation. And the reason is they do a lot of research, a lot. And they also focus on racial inequity in criminal justice. And they were doing that well before I was, well before anybody else was. They were leaders in it. What is your favorite human quality? Integrity. If I can trust someone, it doesn't matter if I agree with them or not. But if they have integrity... We're good. How would you like to be remembered? Um, as a person who cared and didn't just walk by oh. a problem. I, there's this saying in the corporate world, if you see it, you own it. Well, that's true. You see it, you own it. If you see a problem and you can help, you own it. I love that. I love that very much. And <laughs> that jives with your entire ethos of everything that you've said to us today. We ask all of our guests What's one good thing that you could offer to our community? Piece of advice, um, words of wisdom, what would you give? The best path is not always downhill. Sometimes you have to do the hard thing. You know how when when my dogs run away, all I have to do is look, what's the easiest place for them to go? Normally it's downhill. So if I just follow downhill, I'll find them. That's the easiest. And we do the same thing. And it's not always the right thing. What's the easiest? Oh, Sue Ann, you are such a treasure. I am just feel so lucky and blessed to know you and to know that you and your heart are in this world. I've enjoyed this conversation so much. And I want to wrap it up by going back to something that you said that I am still trying to reconcile inside me. You want to be someone that sees everyone. And I am here to tell you, Sue Ann Arnall, that whether you are on the streets of Indonesia looking at starving dogs or whether you are in Oklahoma City seeing the 19-year-old child who has aged out of foster care who literally has nowhere to go and they have a trash sack on their back wandering through this life looking for an advocate, looking for someone to help them. I just want to thank you on behalf of Good Humans Everywhere for being the the greatest for taking this incredible privilege that you have, pouring your expertise, pouring your heart and pouring the love that I feel for your children and your animals into everybody else's children and animals. You're a gift and I'm so glad to know you. Thanks, Becky. You'll make me cry now, but thank you. Hey friends, thanks so much for being here. Did you know we create a landing page for each podcast episode with helpful links, freebies, and even shareable graphics? Be sure to check it out at the link in this episode's description. 
You probably hear it in our voices, but we love connecting you with the most innovative people to help you achieve more for your mission than ever before. We'd love for you to join our good community. It's free, and you can think of it as the after party to each podcast episode. You can sign up today at weareforgood.com backslash hello. One more thing. If you loved what you heard today, would you mind leaving us a podcast rating and review? It means the world to us, and your support helps more people find our community. Thanks, friends. I'm our producer, Julie Comfer, and our theme song is Sunray by Remy Borsboom. Rabbit fans have always powered the We Are For Good podcast, but now Rabbit fans can get even more goodness and access by joining Good Friends. It's our listener support community for the We Are For Good podcast. Good Friends comes with perks, exclusive episodes with John and I, including The Good Brief, our new monthly cliff notes of the greatest takeaways and lessons learned from that month, and exclusive AMA episodes where we answer your burning questions and tap our community of experts. Join now or learn more at weareforgood.com backslash friends. We can't wait to see you inside. That's weareforgood.com slash friends.